0: Welcome to This Means War, a podcast that looks at contemporary conflict, at how wars are being fought around the world today and what this might mean for the future. I'm Peter Roberts, your host, ensconced in a subterranean warren on the south coast of the UK. With a background in wars and warfare, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into the current conflicts around the world and get a sense over how the protagonists were fighting. This all leads to somewhere where we consider what it means for us now and how it might shape the future of warfare and our force design. The show is sponsored by Raytheon UK and is a production for the Wavel Room. Check out their website for more in-depth military discussion at www.wavelroom.org. In the last decade or so, there have been evangelists who have claimed that much of the classical military theory that has been the basis of our understanding of war for the last millennia has been overturned by the arrival of cyber power and informational war. According to these commentators, classical concepts no longer have relevance. Take the ideas of forward edge of the battle area or front line of own troops, known as FIBA or FLOT in military jargon. These phrases, in a general sense, describe the front line of the battle or just behind it. According to those who espouse these narratives about warfare, given the arrival of cyber, a medium that does not abide by physical or geographical boundaries, future wars would be fought over a highly dispersed and disaggregated space. To those, or to these people who talk about these ideas and those that parrot their views, the informational battles would accentuate this and make the ideas of flot and fever irrelevant. The same goes for the concepts of interior and exterior lines. These concepts, exploited as far back as Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War and used to their advantage by Robert E. Lear Antium and George Meade at Gettysburg, exploit the advantages of the defender's physical space to move forces, supplies and equipment to positions faster than an attacker can move outside the defended area. Simply put, the interior lines inside the defender position are shorter than those outside the exterior ones. Fundamental to the interior-exterior line argument was the arrival of railroads in shifting a mass of heavy and bulky fighting equipment to and around theatres of war. In 1855, railway engineer Thomas Brassey constructed the first military railway, which was the Grand Crimea Central Railway. This was fundamental to ending the siege of Sevastopol. Whilst railroads continue to form an important part of war as it's being fought, little consideration has been shown in them by military since the end of the Cold War. The modern concept about war is that armies can be self-supporting on roads using intensive road logistics. In the West, the restrictions and limitations of this methodology were experienced firsthand in Afghanistan with the jingly convoys moving most everything through Pakistan to that landlocked country without usable railways. NATO militaries became adept, if not completely proficient at prioritising, loading, protecting, contracting, delivering and unloading supplies across hundreds of miles of roads. Lessons learned there were shared across NATO militaries And whilst funding for logistics has always been poor in peacetime, generational developments were made. In Ukraine, by comparison, the failure of Russian logistics that are having to work through exterior lines as they attack Ukraine have become all too apparent. Their inability to deliver to their own deployed forces has been noteworthy. Even when they've been capable of living off the land as Napoleonic armies did, the supply of ammunition to them has been well reported as chaotic. And it's the supply of ammunition that's the key in modern battles. Ammunition usage is incredibly high in modern warfare, well beyond the planning assumptions and stockpiles of Western expectations. It's noteworthy this is a common misconception after and between all major wars in most states. But wars are fought with ammo and when an army like the Russians relies so heavily on artillery rather than infantry to gain ground, they need a lot of it. And it's bulky and heavy And they don't carry much with them, it needs to be resupplied to them from logistical hubs. It's around these factors, resupply capabilities, ammunition hubs, rail networks and interior lines that the Ukrainian war is revolving. In a quote attributed to many generals, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, but the reality is simply that logistics wins wars. I wanted to give you the audience a better appreciation about battlefield logistics and the problems that russia has been facing there is no one and i mean literally no one better to provide the detail on that than my guest today trent telenko trent is a dallas-based former department of defense civil servant a title that belies his research and analytical abilities he is quite simply the go-to guy on the russian logistics machine trent welcome to the show Can you tell us a little bit more about the Russian logistics system, what we thought it was, what it actually is, and perhaps how the war they're waging in Ukraine has changed our perceptions of the supply machine?
1: The biggest thing that has popped out of the Russia-Ukrainian war is that Russia from the early 1940s till the 2020s simply has not joined the mechanized logistical revolution that started in the 1930s with things like forklifts and pallets and extended through things like ISO containers starting in the 1980s. What this means is the Russians are working on what amounts to a 19th century railroad logistical model. The trains move the large amounts of ammunition necessary for artillery intensive warfare. And trucks are a distribution vehicle from those forward railway logistical nodes. There are two problems with this. One is the intense reliance on what amounts to free manpower in terms of conscripts to do lots and lots of hard manual labor, taking one and two man carry or four man carry boxes off of trains onto trucks and then off of trucks next to guns. And this huge amount of physical labor in now a manpower starved and demographically collapsing Russia means that Russia is essentially living off of, in the East, in Donbass fighting, years of manual labor that it banked while preparing for this war with the arrival of guided multiple launch rocket systems, GMLRS, in Ukrainian hands from the American military. They have now the ability to reach out 85 and apparently in some cases 97 kilometers to strike these railway ammunition depots and deny the Russian army the ability to move the megatons worth of shells that have been delivered to forward Russian army units The fall of Srebrenica and Lyschansk was specifically due to the huge amounts of artillery that has been banked in the Donbass that the Russian military was using to essentially blow open holes in the Ukrainian lines. When Ukrainians are shooting between one and 2,000 shells a day at the Russians, and the Russians are shooting anything from 45,000 to 60,000 shells a day back at the Ukrainians, Something is going to give. In this case, the cities of Sibodonesk and Lizhchansk. And on the date of recording, we're doing this on the 20th of July. There has been about 10 days worth of GMLRS strikes all across the railway distribution system from the Crimea and Kyrgyzstan through the shores of the Sea of Azov and into the Donbass going up to the Russian Ukrainian border. What this means is the entire Russian distribution system has got to change. They need to push back their railway depots from 40 or 50 kilometers behind the lines to well over 100 in order to be safe from the footprint of GMLRS. And what this means is their turnaround time for trucks going from a 30 or 40 kilometer round trip to 100 or 120 kilometer round trip means they are outside of the one day They're in back range of Russian tactical trucks. And this causes all sorts of distribution issues because if you move a convoy of trucks up to a concentration of artillery, not only do you have to know what the guns need, but they have to be the right calibers. If, for example, you're supporting 122-millimeter rockets and 152-millimeter guns and 122-millimeter guns, You've got to have the right amount of ammunition in each truck. And when you get near the front lines and have to spread out and support the different batteries that are in different locations, there is going to be an amount of time that it will take to unload the trucks, no less than three hours, probably closer to four or five, where they are moving 10 tons of boxed artillery ammunition off of trucks and next to guns. Then they've got to collect together this convoy of trucks from all these dispersed batteries and send it back down a ground line of communication. And here's the thing. Ukrainian roads were none too good at the start of this war. When Russia has been throwing tens of thousands of shells a day at the Ukrainians' backfield trying to cut off their supplies, and then they move forward, it requires an immense amount of engineering work to restore those roads. The Russians haven't invested in any of that until the arrival of GMLRS because they haven't had to. They have had railways, which they have captured. Now they can't use the railways close. And in all the territory that they have gained, they have chewed the road to pieces with shells that are minimally 45 kilograms. In some cases, using 203 millimeter shells, which weigh on the order of 110 kilograms and are about 40% explosives. If you have one of those land on any sort of road, you're not going to be using that road at high speed under any conditions. And you're going to have to do a large amount of road repair in that particular area. The upshot is Russian convoys are probably moving at no faster than 40 kilometers an hour, and given the amount of road damage that the Russians have inflicted on the none-too-good Ukrainian roads, you're likely seeing a lot of spots where they're doing 20 kilometers an hour because they're looking carefully to see if they're not running over sharp pieces of metal or rocks from all the damage the Russian artillery has done. And then, of course, you've got 300-millimeter schmirch rockets, which come in with warheads that are heavier than those 203 millimeter artillery rounds. So if one of those lands on a bridge or a road, that's a cut. You're going to have to bring up some sort of engineering equipment to patch the road. And in a lot of places, Ukraine is very north-south river rich. Every 20 or 30 kilometers, you need a bridge. And because the Ukrainians have been blowing bridges as they've retreated, And both sides have been shooting at bridges when it's key to one side's logistical posture. The bridging issues are immense. And when the Russians come in and put a pontoon railway bridge to cross an area where the Ukrainians have blown up the railway bridge for Russian logistics, those bridges are immensely vulnerable to GMLRS, which is a, think of a 700 kilogram rocket with 90 kilogram warhead that arrives at Mach 2.5, that is around 3,000 kilometers an hour. Well, there is significant explosive and kinetic energy that is going to slam into the pontoon bridge. And if it's on a delay fuse, the water underneath the bridge is going to be thrown up through the hole that the rocket has punched through the pontoon bridge, and the whole of the structure will be heaved into the air. And one or two hits is enough to cut a pontoon bridge, even if it's got railway tracks through it. So the Russian logistical posture in Ukraine in the last 10 or 14 days as of 20 July 2020 has been fundamentally raped by precision-guided munitions fired from American-provided HIMARS rocket trucks.
0: Wow. There is a lot to unpack there. I want to go right back to the start because I find it quite incredible that anyone doesn't use pallets i mean i've told you that they're doing the roof on my house at the moment and the slates arrive in pallets. everything arrives in pallets we just do pallets right and forklifts and icicles i mean that's how we do logistics what do they do instead are we serious that they just two guys are going up and unloading a truck is it not 10 guys i mean because a 152 millimeter shell let alone a 203 is a heavy piece of kit right the russians
1: approach to logistics is there's always another conscript where that came from, comrade. If your manpower is free and you have an economy that is threadbare and you're pushing it to the limit to produce weapon systems, and you've done this for 80-odd years, investing in forklifts and pallets and ISO containers is a monetary cost when you've got free labor. If you've got what amounts to indentured servitude, that is a form of involuntary slavery, to do your logistics, it makes no sense at all to invest in manpower-saving devices to move things. Well, the problem for the armies of the Russian Federation is the 40 million-odd people that live in Ukraine aren't in the former Soviet and current Russian army. They are on the other side. And they also don't have the manpower of Belarus or Kazakhstan or any number of former Soviet states that filled out that there is another conscript where that came from comrade logistical paradigm. So if you haven't invested in not only mechanized logistics, but all of the intelligent information technology that we use to fill up the pallets in such a way that they go to the proper store through a warehouse in an isocontainer box that was filled up in China per instruction sent over the internet. So when they arrive in a big box warehouse in the UK or the United States or anywhere in the European Union, such that every specific pallet goes to a specific store with a specific stock that comes through a cloud-based logistical information technology system. Well, the Russians don't use that. They don't have the IT. They don't have the investment in all of the, not just things like forklifts, but when you design trucks for pallets, you put things like D-rings in them so that you can run all the chains and all the various other devices to hold down the pallets in the truck so the truck can go someplace. And the Russian cargo aircraft, this is something that also popped out. After I noticed that, oh my God, they don't use mechanized logistics and they haven't for the last 80 years, and looked at their aircraft. It's the same way. Their aircraft are built to go to unimproved airfields inside the territory of the former Soviet Union and land. And the assumption is there will be a large crew of conscripts locally to unload the airplane because you're doing cargo operations inside the Soviet Union or inside the former Warsaw Pact. If you have built your logistical system around the assumption that you have what amounts to free slave labor, why do you invest in mechanized equipment? It's a very fundamental institutional incentive to the Russian form of government. And Russia, going back to the 12th century, has always been a large agricultural growing population kind of place. Which means life is cheap and there's always one more peasant farmer that you can impress into your military to accomplish things. Well, if you have that mindset as an institution, why do you do mechanized logistics? What's the point? The other thing that popped out from this realization is that we in the West looked at Russia and saw us. We mirror image, you know, this is the besetting sin of intelligence work is you think the other guy is just like you, and you can't imagine any other way to do things. Well, we've had four generations of intelligence and logistic officers assume that the Russians started using forklifts like we did in the 1930s. Well, let's get back down to brass tacks. All of the models that we built For fighting wars with Russia assumed a certain level of logistical capability. That is, we mirror imaged our own logistics onto the Russians. And one of the threads that I did on Twitter was saying specifically, well, our general strategy was built on an assumption of logistical capability that simply did not exist in the Soviet Union and the current Russian Federation. So, There are a lot of things that we're going to have to walk away from with this observation. First is we're going to have to retrain our entire Western intelligence system so that the people aren't logistically ignorant. And frankly, anyone that has worked in the logistical systems of Western militaries should have seen right off the bat that the Russians aren't using mechanized logistics There are some indications that individual intelligence officers inside Western institutions saw this. The biggest example is Ralph Peters. He's a U.S. Army intelligence officer that had a book published in 1989 called Red Army. It was a fictional book, but he in it laid out that the Russian logistical system was built around hours and hours of backbreaking manual labor. Well, For some reason, at his level of of a major and colonel, going up to the highest levels of intelligence in the various ministries and departments of defense and top level three and four letter intelligence agencies, that realization did not penetrate. All I can think is you had people at the top wanting certain answers and people translating that data from the low level. To information and intelligence at the high level, simply feeding the guys at the top what they wanted to hear. And it happened for four generations. There is an intense amount of self examination that has to happen with our intelligence and logistical and command systems. Because people talk about intelligence failures like Pearl Harbor or 9 11 here in the United States. That's nothing besides seeing 80 years of mirror imaging with not a single clue that we were doing it. And it speaks not only to top level intelligence, but also speaks to top level political leaders in the West that they expected people in the intelligence agencies to tell them what they wanted to hear to build budgets. And let's be honest, this is a form of political corruption that is endemic across the entire Western world. And asking the right questions is going to be an exceedingly uncomfortable task for a lot of people that haven't had to answer questions for generations. There's no easy way out of this.
0: You've raised some really big concerns, but right back at the start of this, I was reading your threads about just on trucks And you see Western militaries and the UK military, and they use drops trucks now, and they all have cranes on. And I couldn't believe it when you put out the pictures of them just not having cranes on trucks. And then you get to the understanding of pallets, and then you start to think about the chains to tie stuff down, both on trucks and in aircraft. You think about all this stuff, which you've explained, it's enormous. But you go right into the detail in your analysis, which I found fascinating, particularly the long-term implications of this. So when you talked about shrapnel on the roads it became a discussion about tires and particularly at this time of year about tires, which I found really important because right now you've got harvest coming in and you've got a lot of tractors. And you explained how the shrapnel on the roads in Ukraine was changing the dynamics about the potential for Russian harvest, right? Yes. Well,
1: look, the Russians are pulling Civilian vehicles out of their economy to go into Ukraine. You're seeing a lot of tractor trailers stealing Ukrainian grain, sending it to Russian ports, and they're being sent from there through Turkey mixed in with Russian grain. So people can't say, well, it's stolen grain. No, it's Russian grain. See? Ukraine was the third largest exporter of food grains in the world. They had the most discretionary grain in the right place to reach the Indian subcontinent and parts of Asia. If you're going through the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, you support all of the Arab states across northern Africa. You support Lebanon. You can support Turkey. The food will go into the east coast of Africa. India is a marginal exporter of some grains, but not all grains different grains have different nutritional values and they cook differently when ground down. Things like gluten and the amount of gluten in a grain will result in different kinds of bread when you bake them. Different countries, because of their diets, want different grains to support those diets. And Ukraine provided all of the above because it had lots and lots of land with really, really thick black, highly fertile soil. Well, that soil in the east and the south of Ukraine is now in the middle of a war. The Russians are throwing hundreds of thousands of tons of artillery shells. I mean, if you do a couple of how many shells does Russia shoot in a day? Calculations. They vary somewhere between seven thousand and sixty thousand, all right? Times what? It's about 140 days as of the date of this. So when you do the high number, you're well over seven million shells. When you do the lower numbers, you're on the order of two to three million shells. It's an incredible amount. And each one of those shells explodes and leaves hot metal shards, which is you know what it's supposed to do. Throw fragmentation to destroy and kill things. And you have hundreds, if not now thousands, of armored fighting vehicles and trucks that have been destroyed by these shells on roads and in fields. And both sides have been using mines. It is going to take literally years to make safe a lot of the fields that were providing grain to the food importing Arab world. From the point of view of world food security, This is an utter disaster. And for Europe, it means possibly in a few months, waves of hungry refugees coming across the Mediterranean, landing in southern Europe and in southern England as they go through France to get to England. There is no good answer here. The problem with agricultural tires is twofold. One is logistics being used to move Ukrainian military equipment and ammunition into eastern and southern Ukraine are not being used to move all the normal gear that support a harvest. And the Russians have been systematically striking what amounts to John Deere dealerships all across Ukraine because those tractors are being used to salvage abandoned Russian trucks. So they represent a military capability for the Ukraine that they have to destroy. Well, this is resulting in a high level of attrition for high productivity agriculture equipment. In particular, the Ukrainians are not going to be able to produce or to move lots and lots of tires to this equipment. One, because it's being used to support artillery and troop movements into the East and South. And the other is, the amount of damage being done to Ukrainian agricultural infrastructure is such that, yes, Ukraine will get a harvest, but its ability to put large amounts of discretionary grain on the world food market is just going to tube. And the upshot is a lot of Africa and the Middle East are going to be short of food. And we're already seeing things like Sri Lanka where for a lot of reasons, they got the agricultural side wrong. There are a lot of other economic mistakes they made, but they had a hyperinflation for food and the government fell. And we can expect to see that repeated dozens of times in the coming months because of the upshot from there being no Ukrainian discretionary grain going out through Odessa, through the Black Sea, to the people that need to eat.
0: There are two sides to this that come out for me in terms of what does this mean for the future. The first question is, aside from the wheat, which we should get back to right at the end and the economics of this. I'm presuming that China maybe iran i don't know i don't know north korea dprk do they have similar problems with logistics as the russians i mean i cannot believe that the people's liberation army in china don't use pallets and trucks but again they have a similar feeling about people and conscription and professionalization of services so what can we learn about our future war strategies from what we're seeing in ukraine on the logistics front
1: let's deal with china first on a number of levels It is quite apparent from the supply chain logistics people that I've corresponded with on Twitter that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia gave Chairman Xi of China about a year's warning that he was going to invade Ukraine. China in that time has been buying large amounts of food for storage in the event of a protracted food disruption. So China is in tall cotton in terms of stored grain in their granaries across China because they've been putting a lot of effort into buying up stuff from the market. It has completely baffled people that watch agricultural supply chains why China was doing this. And I talked to a couple of the experts on Twitter and asked the simple question, given what we're seeing in Ukraine and given the timeline that we're seeing of the Chinese buying, do you think that China knew ahead of time? and it was the shock of realization that came back from those supply chain experts yeah that was the only thing that made sense now as far as china and logistics is concerned china has been on a one child policy for going on 40 years they're starting to go deeply into population decline china made out as if their population was going to keep increasing till the 2030s the most recent data suggests that Chinese population may have started declining in the 2010s. So, China has been investing a lot into high productivity logistics and high productivity civil engineering projects. If you look at the way China builds high speed railways, they have some really incredible machines which will take huge pre built concrete I beams and lay them with a minimum of manpower over huge 30 meter gaps and you see this machine come up and lay a gap and then go to the next large column and lay another gap and go to another column and lay another gap that is just incredible amounts of productivity in terms of replacing people with capital investment and when you look at Chinese ports which are moving the term of art for moving an ISO container is TEU. And of the 10 biggest ports in the world, eight or nine of them are all located in China. They are the highest productivity container ports anywhere. They have the highest levels of container automation, more so than the United States because of of issues with the longshoremen's units, more so than most ports in Europe. And they are the ports that have driven these huge, huge cargo ships that you're seeing moving hundreds of thousands of containers around the world. And China's infrastructure has grown so fast and driven the freighters to be big so fast that it's quite literally outgrown American port infrastructure and all but places like Antwerp and Europe, because the Chinese have been throwing lots and lots of money into their civil economy, and into their logistical infrastructure. And as far as the Chinese military, look, the Chinese economy was used as a place to do cheap warehouse work for big box retailers across the Western world. With a cloud-based IT system and sources of goods manufactured in China, You can put all the retail goods on a pallet for a container that will go to a certain warehouse. Each of the individual pallets will go to individual stores through a a built-in repurchasing system, which drives the whole of the Western economy. This is just-in-time retailing on a global scale. The problems that we have been seeing since COVID-19 jumped on the world in the last quarter of 2019 is this supply chain has been utterly disrupted in particular by the Chinese lockdowns. When you lock down three of the 10 top ports in the world, all the intermediate goods that go to final manufacturing in the West, that is things like cable harnesses that go into cars, you can't run a car without the wiring that goes from the engine to the CPUs that control the engine, that give it a environmentally safer exhaust, and run all of the diagnostics that are in every modern car. Well, if you can't get that cable that's necessary for the car from China through one of these three ports, then you've got to shut down a Mercedes plant in Europe, or a Ford plant in the United States, or a republic of korea auto manufacturer like hyundai because they all use the same sources in china provide those same sorts of parts and because of it the chinese military is working off the chinese economy that is it doesn't invent anything new it uses what it has available And it doesn't have available the amount of manpower. This is why China has professionalized and shrunk its military these past 10 years. It doesn't have as many bodies and has moved into mechanized logistics because its economy has, because the economy doesn't have a lot of bodies. So the idea of striking systematically artillery depots still applies. But the Chinese simply have much more in the way of mechanized logistics to rearrange Their depot system behind the line that Russia cannot because Russia has not made 80 years worth of investment or five years or one year or six months or a day into forklifts and pallets and ISO containers. And more importantly, the cloud based IT systems that allow everything in the supply chain to talk to one another to know where a good is in the supply chain. Let's be honest. Today's ISO containers. Are 1950s warehouses, everything that we used to keep in warehouses, we track in iso containers everywhere from a port like Shanghai in China to a Mercedes plant in Germany. Now, whether it goes by ship or gets put on a railway that goes from China through Russia into Europe, there's a little beacon in those containers that says, I'm here, that passes through electronic wickets that tell them, okay, my supply is right there. There are huge firms that do nothing but provide IT services to that sort of supply chain. All right. If you've built an economy around that sort of mechanized logistics with IT support, you're going to have a lot more punch. That is the PLA will have a lot more logistical punch than the Russian military
0: at any given distance. Trent, I could talk to you for hours, but we run out of time, genuinely, and we didn't even get to casualty rates or force designs or what the IRGC or the uh, Iranian forces have got. But thank you so much for coming on the show. There's always part two. Yeah, we will definitely have to do that. But I've got to say, I'm left with this understanding of logistics being much broader. And in this case... We have logistics being the centerpiece of the next phase of the war with the arrival of Jim Laris and and Mars for the Ukrainians, about how that is shifting potentially the balance of power and the sustainability, the resilience that the Russian forces are able to withstand in terms of their own resupply. It's been absolutely phenomenal. Thanks for coming on the show. And you can follow Trent on Twitter and I thoroughly recommend you do so, his threads are absolutely superb I hope you enjoyed the show do subscribe leave a rating and a review on any of your podcast streaming channels these really help us to shape the content our approach and reach new audiences please also send us your suggestion about topics or conflicts you'd like to see us cover we have a packed schedule over the coming months but we'll certainly respond to your demands email me at thismeanswar at wavelroom.com. The show is produced by Kieran Yates and Joe Bundo and is sponsored by Wraith in UK. It's a production for the Wavel Room, the home of intellectual curiosity and challenging thinking for British military professionals. Thanks for listening.